All right. Thank you, guys. That's very exciting. I was also very excited this week because we finished collecting the Operation Christmas Child boxes, and we set a new record for Northwest Hills Community Church, 338 boxes. So thank you, guys. <clears throat> yeah, that's very exciting. Now, when I was a kid, my parents bought me The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is the first book written in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And I started reading it, and didn't really grab me, and I didn't get into it, and I never finished it. So in 2005, when Disney was releasing the big movie adaptation of the book, I didn't have that book anymore, so I had to go buy the whole series, and I had to read it because in our family, Ruth and I have a rule, you don't get to go see a movie that's based on a book unless you've read the book first. So I went and got the whole series, and I started reading the first book, and this time it totally grabbed me. I was like an overnight Narniac, and I kept reading... And as soon as I finished the first book, I read the second book, and then I read the third book, and then I read the fourth book, and the fifth book, and the sixth book, and when the seventh book. And when I got to the last chapter and the last sentence of the last book, I closed the book, and I opened it up to the first page. And I read all seven books again, like straight through. I was like so hooked on the Chronicles of Narnia. And not just because it's a great story, but it really stirred something inside of me. As I read about C.S. Lewis's portrayal of the, the lion Aslan, it just resonated with me. And to explain that to you, I'm going to back up just a little bit and um, tell you about C.S. Lewis. Uh, he was born in 1898 in Belfast, Ireland, to a relatively happy home. Kind of the only dark spot in his childhood was his church, actually. He went to a very legalistic um, church completely devoid of the grace and joy that we think of as integral to the Christian life. And to make things worse, when he turned 10, his mom passed away, and he and his brother were shipped off to a boarding school that turned out to be a horrible place that eventually the court shut it down because of all the abuse that was going on there. And between his experience with church and then with God letting his mom die and then this the abuse that he suffered at the boarding school, C.S. Lewis decided he'd had enough of God, and he became an atheist. And for 20 years, C.S. Lewis was an ardent atheist, if that's even an expression. But um, 20 years later, he's a professor at Oxford University, and he starts to become convinced that the Bible is true and that God is God. But he, didn't, he still didn't like God at all. He still had all these misconceptions about God. So listen to how he describes his conversion to Christianity. He says, You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared did at last come upon me, in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? He believed in God, but he didn't like God very much. But as he grew in his Christian faith and as he studied and learned more about God, he grew to like God and he grew to love God. And eventually he wrote classic Christian works like Mere Christianity and the Screwtape Letters. And eventually the Chronicles of Narnia 
uh, fantasy story uh, series that he had had percolating in his mind since he was a kid. And originally, there was no Aslan, uh, who's the, a lion, he's the true king of Narnia. He really represents Jesus in the story. First, he was not a part of the story. C.S. Lewis said he had no intention to add that part of the story. But C.S. Lewis says that Aslan galloped into his story and forced himself into it. And once he did, C.S. Lewis realized that Aslan could do something that C.S. Lewis couldn't do in all of his nonfiction works. Aslan could portray Jesus without raising all of the objections that people normally throw up when you start talking about Jesus. Aslan could portray Jesus without raising the objections of suffering and evil in the world or without bringing to mind the legalistic Christian joy suckers that people might have met and that keep them at ar- they want to keep church at arm's distance or any of the other barriers or baggage that people might have collected over the years. Um, so, and, and um, before we go any farther, I'll just say Aslan is not like an exact one-to-one representation of Jesus Christ. And C.S. Lewis never, C.S. Lewis was adamant that Aslan wasn't even an allegory that represented Jesus. He said Aslan is a supposal. He said supposing Jesus, instead of coming to earth to rescue us, had, he'd gone to a magical land of talking animals to rescue them. He said, let's take that as a premise and write a fictional story about what might have happened, what form might he have taken, what might he have said, and that, and that kind of thing. So Aslan is not exactly Jesus, but Aslan certainly reminds us of Jesus um, and how amazing he is and how kind he is and how wise and powerful, uh, what a great adventure it will be to serve him forever and ever. And all of those things are biblical. Um, Paul, when he's talking about Jesus coming back to this earth and righting all of the wrongs and setting up his eternal kingdom, Paul describes the day that that happens like this in 2 Thessalonians. He says, on the day that he, Jesus, comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. All right, as we see Jesus' plans unfolding throughout eternity, and we, we see his holiness and, and his creativity, and uh, we get a feel for the amount of grace and mercy it took to forgive us and adopt us into his family and clothe us in his righteousness. We'll marvel at him with our mouths hanging open, our eyes bulging, barely able to even comprehend how wonderful he is. And that is the feeling that I got as I read the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, When the kids first get into this magical land, so it's a magical land of talking animals, but there are a few kids from our world who've gone through this magical portal and ended up there um, in the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a magic wardrobe. In uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the one that's coming out, it's a giant, or actually it's a regular-sized picture frame. We're building a giant-sized picture frame out front of the church. It's going to be awesome. You've got to thank Derek when you see him. He's worked night and day this week, literally. Um, But they get into this land where there's these talking animals, and so the kids don't know anything about Aslan, the, the true king of Narnia. But when they first hear about him, it says they felt a strange feeling. Like the first signs of spring or like good news had come over them. And this is just from hearing his name. It says, Peter felt more brave and adventurous. Susan felt like a delicious smell or a delightful strain of music had just floated by. 
And Lucy got the feeling you get when you wake up in the morning and you realize it's the first day of the holidays or the first day of summer. And so they want to learn more about Aslan. So Lucy asks, is he a man? Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Yeah, Mr. Beaver, because this is the land of talking, magical talking animals. Aslan a man, certainly not. I tell you the truth, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who's the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Oh, man, can't you just feel the excitement, the wonder and awe and mystery of serving someone like that for all of eternity? In fact, I want to show you just a one-minute clip from the movie. This is one section where Lucy, this is from Prince Caspian, but where she meets up with, with Aslan the lion just for a minute. Watch this clip. The others didn't believe me. And why would that stop you from coming to me? If I had a camellia, the other one who died, could I stop that? We can never know what would have happened, Lucy. But what will happen is another matter entirely. And you'll help? Of course. As will you. Oh, I wish I was braver. If you were any braver, you'd be a lioness. Now. I think your friends have slept long enough, don't you? All right, maybe that gives you just a feel. He's so wise, but also so kind and yet so powerful. I think he's a great reminder of what Jesus is like. In fact, this morning, I want to take a few minutes and make up my own picture, reminder of Jesus. I'm going to kind of take you through it, and then I'll give you a homework assignment to try it yourself. But... Um, so we're going to turn our thoughts from C.S. Lewis and, and uh, the Chronicles of Narnia to the Bible and Jesus. And we're going to read about the true king. If you brought your Bible, open it to Luke 13, verse 10. If you don't have it with you, you can just listen along. But I'm going to read kind of a long section, so we're not going to put it all up on the screen. But I'm going to start in Luke 13, verse 10. It says, On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had dared to heal on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. But the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or your donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? In other words, set it free? <laughs> then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept tied up for 18 long years, 
be set free on the Sabbath day from what bounder? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Oh, this is great. It's one of those instances where Jesus shuts his opponents down with this undeniable logic. And to us, it seems totally obvious and right. Like, of course, you kill or, or do good things on the Sabbath. But for them, that was a radical new way of thinking. And I can just imagine myself in their shoes, you know, just listening to Jesus. The people who really listened to him, just being amazed at his wisdom and going, hey, yeah, that's right, we do set our donkeys free to go out and get water on the Sabbath. They can't even last one day without water. This lady's been bound by Satan for 18 years. Yeah, why not set people free? Wow, that's amazing, you know. And I bet they were just... They just were flabbergasted by his wisdom. And I was trying to think, like as a picture for me, if I want to picture Jesus' wisdom, who would I think of? And for me, that was very easy. And you'll have to forgive me because I seem to mention him every time I preach. But Dr. Rodmacher had this huge impact on me. And that's what comes to mind. I remember my first seminary class. It was a graduate level theology class that was four hours long, four hour lecture. And it was Monday, so you'd work all day Monday. I'd get off at five or whatever, drive an hour into downtown Portland, have my class at six o'clock till 10 o'clock. Gets out at 10 o'clock, I gotta work at the ne in the next morning. I still got an hour drive ahead of me. You'd think I'd be like constantly like, oh, please let us get out early tonight. Oh, please, maybe he'll finish up early. But actually it was the exact opposite. I was like, oh no, it's almost 10. Oh, maybe Dr. Rodmacher won't notice, so keep going. I just loved to listen to him talk. It was so good. I dragged my wife, Ruth, to the theology class one night just so she could see this guy. He's amazing. I was like, I was like in fact, I had to take a brown paper sack to class with me to put over my head so that I wouldn't make a mess when he blew my mind. <laughs> the, all right, I thought I would try that. I thought this is, this is more a Randall kind of saying, but. <laughs> but I was totally in awe of Dr. Rodmacher. And as I drove home, I would have to remind myself, wait, don't idolize Dr. Rodmacher. His wisdom is just a fraction of a fraction of a sliver of Jesus' wisdom. All of his wisdom comes from Jesus. It's Jesus that's awe-inspiring. So when I'm making up my picture of Jesus, I'm going to picture him as wiser than Dr. Rodmacher. Okay? <laughs> Keep going down to verse 31 in the same chapter. Uh, at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Jesus replied, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. Oh, that's good. You think of Jesus as brave? I mean, all the Jews back then were scared of Herod. I mean, he was one of the most cruel rulers in history. He didn't hesitate to murder his own family members if he thought they, proposed, they posed a small threat to his ruler's kingdom. But Jesus, they say, you better get out of here. He wants to kill you. Jesus says, no, go tell that Herod, you're a conniving little fox. And I'm going to heal people and drive out demons right under your nose. And I'm going to reach my goal and you can't stop me, even if you kill me. 
that's good, man. That's brave. As I was thinking, who, as I pictured Jesus' bravery, um, how am I going to picture it? First, I thought of William Wallace and Braveheart. Then I thought, oh, yeah, what about, what about Martin Luther standing up to all the threats and intimidation that the all-powerful Catholic Church could throw at him, and he didn't budge an inch, and he finally said, here I stand. I can do no other. God, help me. I thought, oh, that's good stuff. So I thought, okay, I'm going to picture Jesus. When I get to see him on the new earth and listen to him teach and just watch him lead, I'm going to picture him as wiser than Dr. Rodmacher, braver and tougher than William Wallace and Martin Luther. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. I love it. He goes from almost com combative, almost threatening to Herod, to kind and doting to his people in Jerusalem. Jesus is a warrior with a tender side. Uh, I, I was thinking of David. You know, David is such a great picture of Jesus, okay? Because David was a man's man. David could go out and battle and destroy his enemies and then come back and play a harp to soothe a madman and write beautiful psalms. I thought, what a great preview of Jesus. Absolutely ferocious in battle. Think of the book of Revelations where Jesus is on a white horse, wielding a sword, striking down his enemies, and yet then kind and sentimental and doting to his followers. And I was trying to think, who's a good modern-day picture of that? And I thought of Gandalf the wizard in The Lord of the Rings. And I know, I know he's not real, but he's a good picture. Um, and I also know, I'm kind of, yeah, I thought, I don't know if I can do a C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia sermon and then switch over to do the Lord of the Rings and Gandalf, but I thought maybe you'd put up with it because this is such a good picture. And I thought, oh, you're going to be kind. Oh, and I should point out, my dad is here in the audience today. Raise your hand, dad. That, <laughs> awesome. First time he's ever seen me preach. So I thought maybe today you'd give me some leniency and you might like nod your heads a little extra and yeah, a little amen here and there really help me out because... He's Southern Baptist, so um. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I hear that, amen, John, thank you. Um, so anyway, I'm going to show you this little clip of Gandalf. Think about him. He is this powerful wizard in battle, but watch his obvious affection for the little hobbit Frodo in this clip. Wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins. Nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to.
It's wonderful to see you, Gandalf! <laughs> I didn't think I'd miss your Uncle Bilbo's birthday. <laughs> so how is the old rascal? I hear it's going to be a party of special magnificence. You know Bilbo. He's got the whole place in an uproar. <laughs> well, that should please him. <laughs> Half the Shire's been invited. And the rest of them are turning up anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. Keep your secrets. Good. I know you have something to do with it. Good gracious me. Before you came along, we Bagginses were very well thought of. Indeed. Never had any adventures or did anything unexpected. If you're referring to the incident with the dragon, I was barely involved. All I did was give your uncle a little nudge out of the door. Whatever you did, you've been officially labelled a disturber of the peace. Glad you're back. So am I, dear boy. So am I. Oh, I love that. I love that hug at the beginning, and they're just, oh, he's so kind. And, but what I really like is that it's not a boring, sappy kindness. Uh, did you notice he's a disturber of the peace? Always getting the hobbits involved in these crazy adventures, all right? Does that sound like Jesus? I mean, look in the Gospels. He's the consummate disturber of the peace. Always keeping life exciting for his enemies and his followers together. So I thought, I'm going to picture Jesus as wiser than Dr. Rodmacher, braver and tougher than William Wallace and Martin Luther, kinder and more exciting than Gandalf the wizard. And did you also notice in that clip how Gandalf loves the kids? The kids love him, are flocking to see him. I thought, oh man, that's just like Jesus also. Um, in Luke 18, uh, verses 15 and 16, it says, Luke 18, verse 15, people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So I love that because there's, there's actually two problems in here if you look at it. One is that parents were bringing their little babies to Jesus for him to bless them. And so many were coming that apparently it was hindering Jesus' you know, ministry according to the disciples. He wasn't having enough time to do whatever he needed to do. And so the disciples were rebuking the parents. But then it also says that that, that, that verse is a, or that verse it says um, the, the baby children. In verse 16 it says, it has a Greek word that says the older children also were coming to him. They were apparently, the older children were coming on their own and wanting to talk to Jesus or tell him jokes or play ball with him. I don't know, what, whatever. But they were hanging and flocking to Jesus so much that the disciples were getting frustrated because they kept having to shush him away. 
And I was thinking about this passage, and I was thinking, what does that tell you? As a children's ministry pastor, that tells me Jesus has a good sense of humor. All right, children do not flock to adults without a sense of humor. In fact, I was thinking you wouldn't probably wouldn't last two weeks in children's ministry if you don't have a great sense of humor. So if the problem was too many kids wanted to come hang out with Jesus, then Jesus is fun. All right, Jesus has a good sense of humor. So I was thinking, okay, who's going to be my example as I think of Jesus' sense of humor? And that one was easy for me too. Brian Regan. He's this stand-up comedian that I love. In fact, it was so funny. Like five or six years ago, I got this manila envelope in the mail and from some company I'd never heard of, and I opened it up, and there was a DVD inside, and it said, Brian Regan, I walked on the moon, and it had this funky picture, and I'd never heard of the guy. So I thought he was a singer, and somebody sent me this music video, and I was like, what? So I called the company up, and I, and I said, hey, I just got this video from you guys. Can you tell me who sent it to me? And they said, oh, yeah, if you can give us their address or their credit card number or something like that, we can tell you who it was. I said, no, I want to know. I have no idea. And they said, oh, no, we can't look it up by the recipient. Um, so I said, okay, forget it. So I hung up, and I just threw the video on my desk in my study, and it just sat there for months. And eventually I got sick of looking at it, so I took the video, and I just threw it in the trash. And Ruth saw it. She's like, wait, you can't throw that away. You haven't watched it yet. And I was like, no, I'm not going to watch it. You watch it if you want to. So Ruth took, took it off, and I'm working in my study, and I hear Ruth laughing out there and laughing, and I'm like trying, okay, what's, cracking up, and I'm like, oh, okay, I cannot stand it. What is going on? I walk out there, and she's watching this video. It's this comedian. He was hysterical. It was so funny, so clean. I mean, it was just perfect. I was so proud of like, oh, I discovered this amazing guy. I'm going to have these awesome gifts to give my family every Christmas and birthday. And so for like the next five years, every Christmas and birthday, we'd buy Brian Regan DVDs or CDs and give them to people in my family. And then just last year, uh, we gave my little brother the most recent one. And he goes, oh, thanks. I, I, haven't, I haven't seen this before. I was so happy when I, when I uh, discovered Brian Regan. And I was like, no, I discovered Brian Regan. And, and Trevor goes, no, no, remember I sent you that video like five years ago. <laughs> I was like, oh, man. Just a little show off. <laughs> anyway, Brian Regan is so funny. I mean, he could find humor in a chemical spill. And so... I thought, okay, all of Brian Regan's humor is just a fraction of a fraction of a sliver of the humor that come, all comes from God. So I said, okay, I'm going to picture Jesus as wiser than Dr. Rodmacher, braver and more exciting than William Wallace and Martin Luther, uh, braver and tougher, I'm sorry, kinder and more exciting than Gandalf, and funnier than Brian Regan. All right? But wait, there's more. We could keep going on. We're not going to go into detail in all these, so I'll just throw a, throw a couple out. We could think of meeting the most attractive model in the world. Jesus is the source of all beauty and charisma. Let's get a model picture up there, James. That's what you found for the most attractive model in the world. Mark Larson in a leisure suit.
Okay. Thank you, Mark. All right, one more hand for Mark. Oh, that is hysterical. With friends like these. <laughs> Good job, Mark. What was I saying? <laughs> Picture me the most attractive model in the world. Jesus is the source of all charisma and beauty. You could picture beating the most powerful person in the world. Jesus is the source of all power and authority. Uh, you could picture meeting the smartest person in the world. Jesus is the source of all knowledge and understanding. So let's put them all together. Jesus, for my picture, kind of my Aslan picture of Jesus, is wiser than Dr. Rodmacher, braver and tougher than William Wallace and Martin Luther, kinder and more exciting than Gandalf, funnier than Brian Regan, more attractive than Mark Larson. <laughs> more powerful than the President of the United States, and smarter than Albert Einstein, all rolled into one person. Wow. And then, as if spending eternity with the wisest, bravest, kindest, funniest, smartest, most attractive, exciting, and powerful person in the world wasn't enough. Wait, let me say that again, because I practice that a lot of times. <laughs> as if spending eternity with the wisest, bravest, kindest, smartest, funniest, most attractive, exciting, and powerful person in the universe wasn't enough. Jesus serves us. Now, I talked about this last time I preached, and I said that it flabbergasted me, and it still flabbergasts me, and I still like that word, flabbergast. But it's from Luke 12, 37. So if you want to look at it in your Bibles, you can flip back a couple chapters. It's just one verse, so we are going to put it up there. But Luke 12, 37, Jesus says, It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself. The master will dress himself to serve, and he will have them, the servants, recline at the table, and he will come and wait on them. Wow. If you're on the job, serving Jesus, watching and waiting for him, anticipating him with your whole life when he comes back, he, the master, will dress himself to serve, and will have you, the servant, recline at the table and wait on you. That is amazing. That goes so against my picture of God in heaven. Uh, but then again, so does the upper room when Jesus took off his, his outer robe and he actually grabbed the wash basin and set it down on the floor and he knelt down in front of his disciples and he started washing their dusty, smelly feet. That totally goes against my picture, like what I, my plan would have been if I came as God. Um, but apparently Jesus came to serve the first time he came to this earth. And when he returns to the earth and sets up his eternal, perfect kingdom on the new earth, apparently he's going to continue to serve. And I firmly believe that on the new earth, the highest king, which is Jesus, gets to serve the most people, which is everybody. And similarly, the more authority and responsibility that he can reward us with in heaven, the more people we'll be able to serve. So I want to prove faithful during this lifetime so that God can reward me with as much responsibility in heaven as possible so that I can serve as many people in heaven as possible and be as much like Jesus as possible. 
So Jesus will blow our socks off because he's the wisest, bravest, kindest, funniest, smartest, most attractive, exciting, and powerful person in the whole universe. And he loves to serve us. No wonder Paul says we'll marvel at him. Let's put that verse back up there when he says on the day that Jesus comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. In fact, that's your homework assignment for today, to spend some time marveling at Jesus. And maybe what would be helpful is if you went home and you took my list, the wisest, bravest, kindest, funniest, smartest, most attractive, exciting, and powerful person in the universe, and made your own comparisons. Like for me, Dr. Rodmacher means something. But if, for you, if you haven't spent time with him, that, that doesn't mean anything to you. Think of in your life, who's the one person that you could just sit and listen to and you just like to absorb their wisdom. And every time, every conversation changes you. You become a better person. For my wife, I know it'd be Beth Moore. But who's it for you? Think about that for you and then think about spending eternity on the new earth listening to Jesus talk. Wiser than that person you're thinking of. I think for we're just going to, for days afterwards, try to digest all the information and, and just let it permeate our lives. It's going to be awesome. Then go from wisest, then to bravest, and kind, and exciting, and smart, and funny, and attractive, and powerful. Go through the list yourself. But, but we're going to close with this. We're going to close with a quote from Dr. Sam Storms, which would be a great name for a superhero's alter identity don't you think? But, but this, in this case, it's theologian Dr. Sam Storms, and he's talking about the new earth and spending eternity serving Jesus. And he says, we will constantly be more amazed with God, more in love with God, and thus ever more relishing his presence and our relationship with him. Our experience of God will never reach its consummation. We will never finally arrive as if upon reaching a peak, we discover there's nothing beyond our experience of God will never become stale. No, it will deepen and develop, intensify and amplify, unfold and increase, broaden and balloon. Oh, I love that. Especially the part, ever more relishing his presence. Oh, that's good. And that's what resonates for, for me from the pages of the Chronicles of Narnia as I read about this reminder about Jesus and I think about relishing his presence and marveling at him forevermore, living in the presence of the wisest, bravest, kindest, funniest, smartest, most attractive, exciting, and powerful person ever who loves to serve us. Oh man, that's my savior, my designer, my creator, my hero, Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are awesome. We love you and we can't wait to meet you face to face and Spend forever and ever with you on the perfect new earth. Life is good. Eternal life is better. And all God's people said, thank you.